Close Call with Death. These are the stories of those who've cheated death and are alive to tell their stories. My name is Bob Howard, and I've had many close calls with death. But hey, who's counting? Welcome to the show. Today, I have as my guest Sam Matanyi. 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 Thank yeah. you. I wanted to get that right, and then um, I, I need to pronounce that in Samoan. Yeah. A young man who has worked hard in our community to keep the lights on, and we'll talk about what I mean by that in just a minute. Sam worked as an apprentice to become a journeyman lineman, um, like my son-in-law, Ricky Roby. And Rick told me of his tragic accident, leaving Sam without his hands any longer. Sam is here to share with us his story of tragedy, of danger, bravery, and recovery. So, Sam, welcome. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. (laughs) My pleasure, man. Um, I appreciate you taking some time out, you know, to come and sit with me and and talk about your life and, and what's happened to you. So, tell us a little bit about you. Let us in on Sam. Um, I'll just start from the start and uh, kind of do a sequential order of my life. Uh, I was born in Salt Lake City, and then uh, my sister was also born in Salt Lake City. My, after we were born, my parents decided to move to Hawaii, um, and then the other two siblings were born there, and then he decided to move back to uh, Utah. And uh, West Valley City was where we were living with my grandpa and grandma and uh, an uncle, uh, two uncles, and an aunt, and her kids. All in one home. All in one home. That is one Samoan happy family. Yep, a lot of people in there. (laughs) And uh, it's pretty crazy because I still live in that same house, Uh, but we'll get to that later in the story. And then I grew up uh, going to the school, the local school over there, and then uh, the, the high school was in Magna. I, I got a scholarship to go to Utah State, and at the time... What kind of scholarship was that? It was an academic scholarship, uh, and at the time I was going to be an engineer, um, and I really didn't find my way in school until I left for a mission... Uh, and then I came back, and the Olympics were happening here in Salt Lake City, and there was like an energy in in the city. And uh, I, right then, I decided I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. Um, so I finished school. Hey, let's back up just a, a second. Um, you say you went on a mission. That is for oh, I went on a mission for my church uh, that I belong to, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Okay. Uh, and where did you go on your mission? And I was in the southern part of Brazil. It's called uh, the Curitiba Mission. And uh, that's south of Sao Paulo. Um, they have a, a little bit cooler climate than what most people think. Um, and there's a big waterfall over there. It's called Foz de Iguaçu. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. And you speak Spanish? Portuguese. Portuguese. Yeah. Okay. So I speak Portuguese. I came back and I also minored in Portuguese. So with that broadcast journalism degree, I got a minor in Portuguese. Uh, while I was in school, I did an internship at Fox 13 News down in Salt Lake City. Uh, and I used to work for Mike Rungi as his um, intern. Uh, I don't know, some of your listeners might know who Mike Rungi is, but he had this thing that's called Rungi Time. <laughs> I uh, do remember that. Yes, I <laughs> yeah. remember that more than I remember his name. Yeah. But I knew it rang a bell. Yeah, and he, does, he used to uh, call the football games uh, at the U of U for the, the stadium. Anyways, after doing an internship, I applied for a job as a, a, a video editor at Fox 13 News. And uh, at that time, I got married. Uh, I spent one year at Fox 13 News, and uh, another job opened up at KUTV2 News, a video editor job. And so I applied for that, and I was thinking, I can get some more money. Um, And 
sometimes when you when people get married, they marry the wrong person, and I think I did that. Uh, I think the only way that I could make this person happy was spend money, and so I kind of dug myself into a hole, like mm-hmm. a lot of debt. Um, and that year, I we we had a tough relationship uh, in the beginning. Well, we had a tough relationship forever. Uh, but our marriage only lasted 11 months. Uh, and at that time, I was looking at my brother, and my brother was working in, uh, in, on the power lines. And he was an apprentice ever since I came back from my mission. He started his apprenticeship. So he got it done while I got my degree. Uh, and then I, I looked at his house, I looked at his truck, and I was like, that guy... Make some bank. Got some money to pay off all my bills. And I said, I need to go do what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So I decided I'm going to apply for the apprenticeship. And uh, right away, the apprenticeship actually called me and sent me to Colorado Springs. And I was I was happy about that because you know the 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 marriage thing didn't work out. So I wanted to be far away from where it all went sure. wrong. You know? Just kind of like a fresh start. Yeah, fresh yeah. start. So I went out to Colorado Springs. I stayed out there for nine months. Then I came back over here and worked uh, for a few months. And so the apprenticeship, they kind of send you around. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a five-state apprenticeship. So you could go to Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, uh, Idaho, and Montana. Uh, and so... You know, I'm working my way through the apprenticeship, and I was in uh, my second to last year. I was in Denver, and I remember this day very well. Uh, I actually had a pretty bad day at work. I had this, I had a boss who treated me nice, and and he was uh, uh, very cool with me. But then there was sometimes we would team up with a different crew, and that other boss was kind of a a jerk to me. He's kind of a tried to test me and all these different things. And uh, I remember him getting mad at me for not knowing something. And I went to the car, but I noticed that I had like tons of text messages and phone messages. And I started to open them. And I, I hear one of my friends who was an apprentice with me, he was saying that my brother's dead. And I was like, what? You know, I started... Uh, the drive home, I was listening to all these messages. Some of them thought my brother was dead. Some of them were sorry this happened. Some and wait, them, what was your brother doing at the time? He was uh, working on the power lines. and uh, In the same kind of field you were going into to, to learn how to be a journeyman, yeah, right? Yeah, he had become a journeyman. So he was the journeyman lineman, and he was working on a crew over here in Mill Creek. Um, he got in an accident. And so what happens is sort of like... Uh, I don't know, in, in my church, in your church, we have a thing called Relief Society. And when something happens, they kind of spread the word out by word of mouth. And linemen are kind of like that. They, when something happens, they call their buddy, and their buddy calls their other buddy, and pretty soon everybody knows what What's happened. What's going on, and, and they want to help. Yeah, they want to help. And they're worried. They're, uh, and sometimes they spread misinformation, like the guy that called and said, my brother's dead. Uh, and that scared me a little bit. Uh, I found out later that he's still alive. He's in critical condition. So I flew out. My, uh, the union president actually encouraged me to fly out. So in my family, we have this strong work ethic. Sometimes... We don't know when to stop working. We're just like, yeah, got to go to work, got to go to work. And then something happens, uh, still got to go to work. I remember one time I was with uh, my wife wanted, my wife at the time wanted Mm -hmm. to spend time with me. And I'm like, what? We don't do that. We go to work. She said, you should call a sick day. And I was like, I don't do that. That's (laughs) not how I was raised. We Mm -hmm. go to work. When it's time to go to work, we go to work. And at the time, I was questioning, should I come back home? Should I quit the apprenticeship? Uh, luckily for me, um, 
my union president called me, uh, and his name is Make Mau Mau. And he told me, hey, come fly home. And I, I flew home, and I found out he's still alive. And what happened to him? Uh, he was, I don't know the full story, and neither does he, because he got knocked out on the pole. I do know that his apprentice died in the accident, and he was in the hospital bed. He was burnt um, by uh, 7,200 volts, and so he had burn marks all over his body. His body was bloated up big, and uh, I'll let him tell that story to you on this show let, in another leave, interview in another interview that would be great we'll get the brothers in here talking about a close call with death yeah because that did almost take his life we thought i thought he could he could die and uh and i was worried um the apprenticeship was nice enough to move me over here to salt lake to work nearby and i'd go visit him every day uh after work and then eventually he came conscious because he, he wasn't, when I would go visit, he wasn't fully conscious. He would wake up and then I'd say, uh, hey, it's me. And then he would say, hey, what happened to Stephen? Where's Stephen? And Stephen is his apprentice. So he was very worried about Stephen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen had passed away. So I had to have to tell him that. And then I would cry and he would cry, but then he would fall asleep. Oh. And then he would wake up the next time and ask the same question. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of in this cycle of in conscious, sub, uh, out of consciousness. And then uh, finally he started getting better. And so in the hospital stay, he lost his right arm right at the shoulder. He has a lot of burns from his legs down. I asked him, at the time, I said, I don't know if I should stay in the trade. And at the time, he said... Because it should, seemed extremely dangerous yeah, to you. If exactly. that could happen to your brother, was, then you weren't sure if maybe you should take that risk. Right. I was uh, just trying to make sure everything's okay and safe for me to continue. I didn't want to end up in the same boat. Yes. Uh, he, he encouraged me to stay in, at that moment. Um, so I stayed in, not just because of him, but because that worth, work ethic that I talked to you about, it's like I, I told my other cousins that kept checking on me, Matangese, don't quit. We don't quit. We never quit. And so I kept going. And uh, I got sent to Colorado, back to Colorado, and then I got sent up to this mountain town named Kremling, uh, and I remember it was super cold there and I was, I was wondering when they would stop doing electrical work there because the ground gets too hard to dig if it, it freezes too much. So they don't want you to dig and disrupt the water lines. So people will be without power and water. Sure. Um, I was like, please be done. Please shut this job down. Uh, it was about 10 degrees and I remember... My fellow apprentice, he had to go to Montana to do his test to become a journeyman. So we were in a two-man crew. And here in Salt Lake, there's different rules all around the country. Here in Salt Lake, the union strong enough to make a rule that whenever you're working hot work, you should be in a four-man crew. Uh, over there, the rules weren't so rigid, uh, especially being in an REA they want to keep the electric electricity bills down for those uh, farmers out there in rural areas. Yeah, that REA stands for Rural Electric. Rural Electric uh, Area. Okay. Yep. And uh, I was up in a bucket. And those are those cherry pickers, some people call them. Uh, and the bucket is insulated, so electricity cannot go down through the bucket. Um, and I had we had moved this. 14,400 volt line to some new poles because they're trying to spread out the streets there, make them wider. And uh, we had to move the transformer to the new pole. Um, We moved the transformer to the new pole, hung it on the pole. And then the first thing you do on a transformer is you hook up the secondary side, which is the voltage that comes in into your house, uh, 120, 240. Um, and we had hooked up a light, 
that was pretty far away. So now that it was on the new pole, it had a lot of extra um, wire. I, I cut that wire and I was looking down to throw it away. And I throw saw, it away just means get it out of your way or disregard it, get rid of it. A lot of times we'll just throw things on the ground and there's a person on the ground that's going to pick it up and yep. put it in, in the back of the truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause a lot of that stuff can be recycled and, sure. and they can make money back on the recycle stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I looked down and there was my journeyman, uh, my journeyman and my foreman down on the ground right below me. So I was like, I don't want to throw it on him. And then I remember turning, and uh, I don't know what happened after that. I, because of the electricity that hit me at that moment. Why uh, did it hit you? Did, did the wire that you cut mm-hmm. touch another cable, another So, line? yeah, what they found out in the safety um, investigation. Uh, investigation is that the wire that I was holding to throw away hit the power line above me and I was also holding on to the neutral. Oh my gosh. And so I became a conductor and the 14,400 volts burned through my skin uh, where my hand was touching that uh, wire scrap piece. And then it went through my body and then it burned on the way out uh, of my right hand to go through the neutral, which is the ground wire. How did that not tear your insides apart and uh, your heart explode your heart i don't even know because sometimes it does um but i i think that where it burns is where there was resistance so the skin is a resistor at, to some point and the skin is a resistor but inside our bodies is made of water and water is actually a conductor so electricity can flow through water uh and I believe that it was burning uh, the hand parts, but it, it didn't make contact long enough to burn the heart. So yeah. I, I was checked in the hospital, and the heart was good. Anyways, I woke up, and I was on a stretcher. I could hear a helicopter, and it felt like I was waking up for the morning to go to work. So I tried to sit up. I was strapped down to the... To the uh, the um, gurney, yeah, the gurney. So you didn't even know where you were at the moment. You thought you were in bed getting up. Yeah, I thought everything was a dream. Uh, turns out that when the electricity hit me, I stopped breathing. Uh, the journeyman and foreman lowered me down, and he started chest compressions because he saw that I wasn't breathing. Uh, once he started the chest compressions, that's when I started breathing. But I wasn't conscious. I didn't come conscious until they were about to take me on a helicopter. And the reason they were going to take me on a helicopter, they took me to the, the town uh, medical place. And uh, they said, we can't handle that. We got to send them to the big hospital. In Denver. In Denver, yeah. Aurora, the University of Colorado Burn Center. Um, and I, I woke up and I tried to sit up. I couldn't sit up. And I noticed the helicopter sounds, and I started asking those guys questions. I said, why are my hands burning? And they said, tell me your name and your address. And I said, my name's Samoana Matangi, my address 3821 South, da 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 And why are my hands burning? And then I remember they gave me something that knocked me out again. And then I didn't wake up until I was in the hospital in Colorado. And uh, I just, I noticed my brother was there. And then I was in shock. Uh, this is the brother that was burned, and he had recuperated. Yep. And, and, and also, he, he didn't have a limb, right? Yeah, he was a one-arm amputee. Uh. He had his left hand. Um, he was there by my bedside when I woke up, and I was in shock. Like, what the? How can two brothers get... Zap by electricity like you two did. Yeah, and it's uh, I always brought up the phrase, there's no way electricity can strike the same place twice. And that's <laughs> yeah. what I felt like. I was yeah. like, how did this happen? And I, I, you know, I had said my prayers that morning. I'd been saying my prayers all the time for safety. Um, and so I was in shock of why is this happening? 
my uncles came to the hospital and they gave me a blessing. And at the time, I still had my hands. Uh, they wanted me to keep my hands, and uh, but they they at the hospital they injected my arms with a dye. And the dye was to see if blood was flowing down there. Mm-hmm. And also, every morning I would try to move my hands, and it would just move just a tiny bit. But it wouldn't. I couldn't control the fingers; they were stuck. Uh, and the came three days later, the dye was not moving down to the hands to the extremities. And so the doctor came to me and said, "Well." We found out the blood's not flowing down to your hands, so uh, you can die if you keep your hands. Or so you, you were in jeopardy in the hospital. There, you you could have died there. Yeah, from gangrene. So oh. if you have a dead limb, yes, it can turn into gangrene. And he said you either have the choice to keep your limbs and you could die, or you can amputate them. And I just said amputate them. I didn't really. I wanted to live. I I wanted to live for other people, like for my brother and for my uncles and sure. and things like that. So that Friday I had a, the amputation, uh, and then I woke up with no hands, and I was still in shock. I stayed in shock for the whole two months that I was in hospital. Uh, they actually transferred me to the U of U hospital so I could be closer to home. And, and was that up at the Burn Center? At, at the, the Burn Center at the University of Utah, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they moved me down to the rehab floor. And uh, I started doing um, occupational therapy and physical therapy. And physical therapy, I was really good. I could jump up and down and do all the things that <clears throat> all those other people wanted to do. Uh, they, they had different situations going on. Uh, it was the occupational therapy that was difficult for me because I had these new hands and I didn't know how to use them. Uh, and so me and my occupational therapist started to look up on the internet how to do them. And how how often do they have double hand amputees? Sounds like is pretty rare. Yeah, that's one of the problems is that it's so rare that none of the occupational therapists had dealt with a person like that, and they didn't know how to explain to me how to do things. Because that's what I was basically worried about. How do I take care of myself? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I want to talk about that just a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I want to go back, just, uh, you know, after you've um, re- you co- recovered, you're living, mm-hmm. um, and all of a sudden you've got this heavy mental load on your mind where you're thinking, here I am, a young man, both hands are gone. Um, how did you get through that mental anguish and, and, and challenge to you thinking about what was ahead of you in life? Uh, tell me a little bit about this. Share that with the listeners. So there, it, while I was in the hospital, I had all these people come and visit me. And so my brain kind of put that away for later. Okay. Um, and then the later came when they were going to transfer me home to my house. Uh, so at that time, I was a, a little bit worried that I couldn't take care of myself. I didn't want my mom or my sister have to wipe my bottom as a 34-year-old man, and their mom is wiping their bottom. I- See, and you know what? That, that just crushes my heart thinking about that. Um, you want to be independent. Yeah. And even the simplest um, regular hygiene things that a person does for themselves, that, that was being compromised. That was going to be a challenge for you. And the slightest simple thing like that is so monumental. I, I bet that really was hard on your outlook. At yeah, that point. Uh, I like I like you said. I I was an independent person, and my identity kind of revolved around my hands. I loved sports. I loved basketball, football. Um, I loved video games. You're, you're a tall guy. You when you walked up to me to, mm-hmm. uh, today, I mean, you're, you're you. It looks like you're taller than me. How tall are you? I'm six foot two. Yeah. Um, and I was playing really good basketball at that time of my life. 34 is like kind of like the peak of the physical and the mental. Yeah. Thing. 
side. Yeah. And so it it was really depressing. In fact, I had an episode where I woke up while I was I was sleeping and I had a dream that I reached for the light switch on the wall. And uh in my dream I had hands. And so the reason I was reaching for it cuz I knew I could reach it. Right at that moment when I was going to hit the light switch, I woke up and my hand was actually reaching out there. Um but because my hands were amputated, I was just reaching out there with my residual limb and I airballed it. You oh my know? gosh. And then all of a sudden so I you have felt phantom. like phantom. Do, do you have phantom pains or phantom feelings? Then? Yeah, I do. I have the 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 that fire that I explained about when I was on the gurney. It's uh it's in my limbs, my residual limbs. I can feel that fire all the time that I'm awake. Um I take some medications that kind of Dulls it. Dulls it down, but it's still there. Um, and then in, in that moment of reaching and, and whiffing for that light switch, I felt like the walls were closing in on me. And like it was time to do something. Time to, I would have to do something now. And I didn't have the nurse button to rely on to push. I didn't have these nurses that are paid to do those things that you're asking them to do, like the hygiene. Um, and I went home and I remember I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to do anything except sleep. Did you want to give up at that point? Yeah. I, I really felt like I was going to be a burden to my Mm -hmm. sister and my mom. And that just made me super sad and super depressed because I'd never wanted to be in this life to be a burden on other people. Right. I was raised to be helpful to other people. And uh, I remember my first time I needed to go to the bathroom, I had to ask my mom to get, help me wipe my bottom. And I, I was like, I need to do something. And uh, luckily, a friend on Facebook, all these amputee friends started becoming my friend. And they reached out to me. And this guy from Kentucky named Jason Coger. Uh, I reached out to him and asked him how to go to the bathroom. Um, and because he reached out to me, that made that feeling that I was the only one in the world with this problem because I started to feel like I was the only one in the world that has no hands and I was blazing this new pioneer trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can feel super lonely. But then when I was able to reach out to him and he explained to me on the phone how to do it with these prostheses, then I started to think, oh, that's, there's hope. There's hope. Yeah, that gave me that little glimmer of hope. And I remember also that in the hospital, I had created a relationship with uh, a psychologist who, I, when I would meet with him, we, I would be able to talk to him and he would be able to get me to see the bigger picture without telling me what to do. Um, And then I remember after one week, my home teacher and a home teacher in in my religion, there's people assigned to be kind of your friend and, and person that you can call on for help. He reached out to me and he said, do you want to go to the jazz game? And I was like, yeah, at first I was like, yeah. But then what, what popped into your head the very first second when you think about going into public, into a, a jazz game like that? What was the first thing that you can, were worried about? The first thing that I was worried about was needing to go to the bathroom, needing to feed myself, yeah. um, spilling on myself, being embarrassed. Uh, and uh, then I also, I started to make excuses up in my head. I was like, oh, it's going to be too cold. Because I had been in the hospital in like a 70 degrees environment for like two months. And then I came out in February in Utah, which is super cold. And I told, I called him back and I said, no, I don't want to go to the jazz game. It's going to be too cold. But I remember that day of the jazz game was uh, the same day that I would meet with my psychologist and I went and talked to him, and I said, oh, some guy invited me to the jazz game. And he's like, oh, are you going to go? I said, nope. And then he said, why? <laughs> I said, it's too cold. And then he said, and then he started to weigh it out for me, like help me weigh it out. He said, 
well, how long are you going to be cold? And I said, well, I started, I knew where he was going with it. So I started overestimating. Oh, it's going to take five minutes to get to the car. And then it's going to take 20 minutes to walk to the stadium. I'll freeze out there. I'll be cold for like 50 minutes. I can't believe it. Be like working in a freezer for 50 minutes. Yeah. And then he goes, and then what are you going to do when you're at the jazz game? And I said, well, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to yell. I'm going to scream and uh, cheer for the jazz and, and have fun. And he said, how long are you going to do that? And I would say, well, I'd say the jazz game is about three hours long. And then he said, so is the 50 minutes of cold worth the three hours of uh, fun? And I said, oh, I, yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty smart way to look at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he explained it. Uh, he, I knew where he was going, and he, he knew still, where he, he was going. You at it. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. So he got me to go to the jazz game, and it was a great experience. I went to the jazz game. I was screaming and cheering, and they put me on the jumbotron. That's and, so cool. Uh, it was a great experience, and that encouraged me to do some more of that to venture out into the world, and. Uh, and then I remember that being a huge um, boost of hope. And then one month later, uh, my family had planned this trip to Samoa to have a family reunion. And uh, two people in each family each uh, were invited. It was me and my sister. And my family reached out to me and said, are you going to be able to make it? And I said, yeah, I won't miss this for the world. Um, And I remember landing on the airport, and uh, you actually walk out onto the tarmac and then into the the, um, terminal, Mm -hmm. and then they're giving you all these lays. and, uh, uh, And then over there, you can still ride in the back of a pickup truck. And so... They they arranged for enough cars to be over there to to drive us home and I they they said do you want to jump in the front they they were treating me like a, a kind of a fragile egg so I wanted to be with the men yeah so they're like you want to be in the front with the ladies and I was like no I want to be in the back with the boys <laughs> and I remember going in the back of the pickup truck and I was looking up and I could see all these stars because out there it's so dark the the light pollution isn't as big as over here. Yeah. You can see way more stars than you can over here. Um, and I remember looking up and seeing all those stars. And then my uncle was telling me a story about how my dad used to fight him because my uncle was number seven and my dad was number nine. And number nine, the, he's a little shorter guy. We're talking about seven and nine as far as number of children, children in yeah. line, right? So there's 13 children. Okay. Uh, and number nine is always fighting to get attention yeah. and whatever. And, and then didn't help that my dad is a short guy and he, he, he wanted uh, respect and all that stuff. So he was telling me about how my dad used to fight hard and punch him so hard, but then... He would handle him later. He just let him punch all his punches out and then take care of him. And then I remember thinking, man, my grandpa and my grandma came from this like speck, tiny little rock in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do that. They didn't fly all the way to Oakland and then migrate to uh, Utah. For me to just sit on my couch and be depressed. Yep. And I said, I need to do something. I need to do more. And I came back from that trip like fired up. And so I said to myself, I don't want anyone to ever feel that hopelessness that I felt in the hospital, like searching for how do you do this as an amputee? Mm -hmm. Because it feels it's a lonely place. Uh, so I started this YouTube channel, and I started to teach the things that I had learned on how to do this and how to do that. Um, hey, uh, Sam, how would the listeners find that YouTube channel? Um, how would they find it? So it's, it's, uh, if you search Google No-Handed Bandit, uh, that YouTube channel will come up. Okay. And you know, it's No-Handed a, Bandit. There's also a webpage uh, with that uh, 
no-handed bandit and it has the youtube channel uh videos on there um and i remember that it felt so good to give back because i had felt like i was going to be a burden but in certain ways i had the ability to help somebody that no one else had that's right and so i became not a burden anymore um so that's kind of like the magic sauce there. It's, it's just the magic in it that when you're feeling down and you feel like there's no hope, that if you look outside of yourself and you look at the other people that may be suffering at the time and you have the, the special experience to be able to help them, then that gets you out of your head of feeling as bad about your condition as you did and, and you lose yourself in others. And that sounds to me like what happened to you. Right. That was exactly what happened to me. Is I, I, instead of looking at where I was missing the way things used to be, I started looking at what can I do right now. And there's a saying that uh, helped me too, is that if you think about the past and what was too long, you'll be depressed. If you think about the future, like when I was worried about what am I going to do to provide a living for myself, you become, you have anxiety. So there's those two things, anxiety or depression. Or if you live in the moment, you, um, you're not with those feelings and you're in the moment, you can feel the feelings that are right now. Um, that's one important thing to learn. For me. That, that's perfect. And I'm so happy that, that, that you learned that and that you're able to share that because there are not only a lot of listeners out there that have had accidents, you know, that may not be as severe as what you had happened to you, but there are a lot of people out there that are just suffering from anxiety and depression. And these sort of things, your realization of what can help is going to help them. I'm yeah. just confident. Yeah. In, Definitely. I, I, uh, I also take part in a group uh, for burn survivors, and there's just a bunch of burn survivors that come and meet, and I used to go there every week. Uh, where, where was that? That's up at the University of Utah Burn Center. Okay. And uh, they helped me realize a lot of these things by discussing with other burn survivors. And then I got to a point where... They trained me to be a peer. And what a peer does is they go to those meetings and show the other burn survivors, this is how I am now, 10 years from my accident, and I'm able to do all that stuff. And what it does is it usually gives the other patients hope. And so I kind of just become this dealer of hope and give other people hope. Do you get paid for that? No, I don't get paid at all for that. That's volunteer your heart out to theirs. Yeah. But it's priceless. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I, they always, it always helps me just as much or more to go there and tell them uh, about my story um, than it helps them. Often, it, I'm, I'm the one benefiting by telling my story. I stay grounded. And I remember those tough times. Because if you forget those tough times, um, you, you often aren't grounded and don't remember where you come from. It's kind of like that story of me remembering about my grandpa came all the way from here. Yes. Uh, because if you don't remember where you came from, you often get lost on where, where you're, you're going. going. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question for you. Is, um you know, a while back, were you angry when all this happened? So when I went home, I was angry, so mad. And I remember I was angry at workman's comp because I felt like they need to give me hands. They need to give me hands like the hands I had. And one of the keys that uh, helped me to get over that anger, anger is that group meeting. My the one of the group leaders helped me to realize that one 
I need to be an advocate for myself. Mm-hmm. Often when we get in a, a trapped situation or a depressed situation, we, we've, I felt people need to fight for me. But no one's going to fight for you if you're not fighting for you, right? That's right. They can fight for you, but if you're not fighting for you, you're not going to get the best results. So I had to become an advocate for myself with workman's comp, but I also had to accept the situation. I was creating this notion that uh, workman's comp was going to provide me hands like I used to have when in all reality, there is no such thing as the hands we were born with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so as soon as I accepted these as my hands, that's when the learning and the progressing started um, and when I started to gain confidence that I can do anything that I used to do, it just takes more time, it takes more ingenuity, um, creativity, creativity, innovation, yep. everything. Yeah. All those things. So yeah. angry now. Everybody has their ups and downs and sometimes I'm angry, but as soon as I get angry, I always helps to become grounded and remember where you come from. Right. And uh, when, as soon as I become angry, I start to remember those lessons that I learned and then realize that anger, anger doesn't get you very far. There was a time where I was learning things out of anger and, and I would learn, I'll show you, I know how to tie a tie, I'll show you. And then pretty soon that fire burns out faster. Anger burns out faster. The, the thing, the motivation motivational feeling that burns the longest is love. And when I learned that I love life, that's when I found this, this fire that burns way longer than anger. So, you know, um, there's been a common thread on this show of people that have had a close call with death, mm-hmm. that it seems to be this catalyst to make them think about real seriously what life's all about, how valuable it is, how precious it is, how lucky we are to be in this life, how fortunate we are to be in this life, and what we're going to do with it, mm-hmm. what we're going to do going forward. What is Sam going to do now that you have all this life left after this tragic accident and you did not die? What sort of things you know are you aspiring to do in the future? And it sounds like you know you want to help others. Mm-hmm. That is a big part of your mission. What else is it that you want to get out of the rest of your life that you want to set your sights on? Well, <laughs> I I do want to get married. I want to have kids, um, but I also am getting to the point where I can be happy without being married and having kids, um, and. It's hard for me to think of not helping somebody because it becomes this thing. I don't know. I was ingrained with it to help other people. Um, but I, I would like to have a family and kids. I would like to. You look to me like you could hold a baby in your arms just fine. Just easy. Yeah. And matter of fact, I bet you could change a diaper with those with those uh, uh, prostheses. Yeah, I could. I I could, but I don't want to let that secret out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, after this gets out, you'll yeah. have all these people that just really want to go out on a date with they you. They want to and... test me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, Sam. Now change the diaper really quick. See how mm-hmm. fast you can do it. Yeah. Um. So you know, it's uh. It, what could you tell others that are going through a similar? Uh, incident like you, a similar injury, what kind of words of, of advice or encouragement would you give them? Um, I, I think that uh, one of the main lessons and one of the things, and sometimes I go and, and this is something I get paid to do, I go and give talks to other burn survivors and tell them uh, my lessons. And the last thing I leave them with is uh, that... Before I got burned, I thought my identity was in my hands. Like, working was with my hands, editing video was with my hands, football was with my hands, basketball was with my hands, all the things, playing video games was with, was with my hands. And through this journey, I found out that my identity is not in my hands. 
my identity is in my head and in my heart. Who I am is in my head and in my heart. Uh, just because I had my hands amputated doesn't mean I'm not me. I'm still me because I have my head and my heart. So that's the thing I, I like to leave with them. Uh, and hopefully that gives them hope. And the, one of the things that I've learned is that hope is the most important thing. That there's a movie line. It's a rated R movie, so... Does that stand everyone, for really good or... or, or yeah, what? really good R. <laughs> it's called Shawshank Redemption. Yes. And I've he talks that. about hope. And he said hope is the most important thing because it gives us a reason to continue on going, even though it may seem like there's no way, right? Absolutely. And that was one of the other things that helped me a lot is my sister. One time I was really mad because my neighbor came to my door and blamed me for hitting his car with my car. He saw my car was banged up. He saw white marks on his car, and he said it was me. I was like... That was not me. It was the day of the Super Bowl. I came out and I threw my arms on the ground, my prosthetic arms, not my real arms. And I said, how can I drive this car with these? Boom. And I remember the hook was bent. And she's like, and then I came in and because of that anger, I came in and cried. And I remember my sister sat me down and watched that movie, Shawshank Redemption. And uh, that hope part hit me so hard that as long as we have hope, we can continue on, no oh, matter beautiful. what happens. So, you know what, um, I, I just want to throw this out, not that I'm trying to make a, a big religious channel, but as far as God is involved, was he involved with your recovery, with your life, and helping you dig out and be there? Multiple times, God was involved, um, and I often feel that God sends angels, but it's not ones that you can't see. It's people that you can see, like the guy that was assigned to be my home teacher, inviting me to the jazz game, like my family members coming to visit me in the hospital, like the psychologist that helped explain to me um, and weigh out uh, the pros and the cons. Uh, and I feel like he's the one that inspired those people to come help me. That's awesome. I love that. I, I had to throw that in there because I've, I've interviewed a gentleman on this show that mm -hmm. said that when he was on the brink, he was on the edge, he felt like, he didn't know if he was going to live again. Uh, he said it was almost like flares went out. Mm -hmm. Like God just sent these people to help him in all different angles and, uh, and pulled him back. And it was, it was tender. It was mm -hmm. good. So um, any final thoughts? Anything that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners before we go? Well, I, I think um, one thing that uh, we can all use uh, when we are in that place and we've come out of that place and we're, we're on the road to recovery. Um, I remember me being super hard on myself, right? Uh, and I think that we can all be more gentle with ourselves because we're humans. We make mistakes. And, and I remember, I remember that every time I was going to make a new video, like something crazy, like a man with no hands uh, wakeboarding, <laughs> I would get this feeling in my gut, like this fear, like, oh, man, what if I fail? <laughs> <laughs> what if I drown what out is, there? <laughs> what is this video going to be like <laughs> yeah. if I fail? And, uh, and I remember I, every time I got that feeling and I just continued through it, uh, it turned out to be great. And, and the saying is, when you feel that fear, go out and do it anyway. That's when you're still living. 
Because if you stop feeling that fear, that means you're, you're no longer evolving or changing with the world. You're no longer living. You're no longer progressing. You're no longer growing. So when you feel that fear, do it anyway. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I have a, a sign hanging on our wall in our house from Hawaii, from <laughs> Kauai. Oh. And it says, uh, if in doubt, don't go out. And you know what? It means a lot to me in many different ways, other than, you know, if you are in doubt that there's a shark out there, don't go out. Yeah. That relates to me in life. If, if in doubt, just don't go out. And you know what? You have to push through that fear exactly about what you just said. Yeah. And I love what you just said. And, and um, I think this is a beautiful story. I'm so proud of you. Oh, I just wanted to also find out before we go, uh, what do you do now? You know, as far as a a job, you know, what do you do now? So right now, uh, I do a part-time job at Solitude. I'm transporting employees uh, up the mountain and then back down. Okay. Uh, They they got a little UTA van. Um, But I'm also, I'm blessed in to live in this country that we have uh, like a fallback plan. And I, I do receive disability to help me to do those things, uh, to help other people. What about your broadcasting career? I want to, I want to do more. And, and I think that's where that YouTube thing comes out and where I keep my, my tools sharp and ready just in case the opportunity comes. Uh, because I mean, when you're not ready and the opportunity arrives, then it's so sad, too bad. <laughs> but if you're, the opportunity arrives and you're ready. And you grab that ring. Yep. Just don't doubt and go for it. Don't just get out. And yeah. don't, don't doubt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Sam, this has been a fantastic uh, talk with you. And, and uh, I, I wish I could spend just all day talking to you. I really enjoy um, mm-hmm. your comments and your story. You're really heartfelt and just a great man. And I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. Mm-hmm. Good luck to you. And, uh, and we'll be checking in with you and we will definitely talk about getting your brother on this show. Right on. He'll be good. Yes, he would. Mm-hmm. So um, this is another episode of a close call with death. Thank you for tuning in and, and listening to this story uh, uh, with Sam and Until we hear from each other again, stay alive to tell about it.